It says in Proverbs 22:15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. The rod of discipline. I'm going to speak about spanking children tonight. <laughs> Using a rod to do it. No, I think I'll bypass that and go to Daniel chapter 7 instead. We had a guy that <laughs> just reminded me of something. I worked at, uh, in Chicago years ago at UPS in the break time. We had guys, this is a long story, that would actually do give a devotion or preach during break time, 15-minute break, and a guy who was about 31, 32 years of, all, of age didn't have any children at all. And, you know, this is the guys, you try to invite people that are unsaved to this, and this, this guy preached on child rearing in, in the uh, break time. I never did understand that. But anyway, Daniel chapter 7. Um, Daniel was a key figure, as we saw, a key, key human figure of the first six chapters of uh, Daniel. And uh, I wanted to say something about that because I don't want you to misunderstand something about him. Mike said Wednesday night in his message, he said that he felt intimidated by Daniel. He said, don't you feel intimidated by Daniel? The guy seemed to be perfect and never do anything wrong. And I, and I felt the same way. I mean, I've looked at Daniel and I thought, Daniel's the man. He's, he's way up here. You know, we can never achieve that status. You think that about other guys in the Bible as well. And uh, you see a guy whose prayer life is consistent. He's, it's frequent. It's three times a day. He never misses. Throughout the course of his life, he's always praying. You see a guy who's living the right kind of life. There's no recorded sin. I, I don't think that there's any recorded sin of Daniel. Seriously, in, in the book of Daniel, although he talks about his sin, we'll see that. Uh, there's no compromise in his life. He never compromises. He's always, you know, taking a great stand for God. He does it in the right way. Um, there's no flaws. There doesn't seem to be any flaws in Daniel's life. God seems to be nearly perfect. I think it says of him that heaven says, or God says of him, you're a man most beloved, Daniel. This guy seems to be so great. And then we look at our own lives, and we say, we can't compare to Daniel. I mean, we look at our lives, we just see the sin in our lives, and we see the flaws in our lives, and we see the compromising attitudes in our lives. We see, a, you know, Daniel had an excellent spirit. We see poor attitudes in our lives, and, and we see our prayer life being so pathetic and weak and inconsistent, and we say, how do we measure up to this guy anyway? What are we to think about this? Well, how are we to view Daniel at, at, at any rate? And I wanted to talk about that a little bit before we went on. First of, all, first of all, I want you to notice that Daniel was a man for, for his time in Israel, Israel's history. He was a man for his time in Israel's history. Um, just like Moses was chosen by God to lead the Exodus, to lead the children of Israel, and they went in the wilderness, um, uh, Daniel was the same way, chosen by God to do the job. Just like Paul was in the New Testament, a chosen vessel, God said. This is a guy who God chose, handpicked, and said, I want this guy to be my man for this time. Just like Jesus handpicked his disciples after a night of prayer. Uh, these were men that were chosen by God to do a certain job at a certain time in history. Spurgeon was like that in England in the 1800s. Spurgeon was a gifted man. People look back at Charles Spurgeon and say, what a great guy. This guy preached to like 6,000 people every week in his church, and the guy was just unbelievably gifted. Fantastic guy. Everybody looks to him, and you think, I could never be like that. Well, it's because those guys were in the sovereign plan of God for a certain time in history to do a certain job. And so that's one way to look at Daniel. Another way is that Daniel set the bar high for us. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing if you think about it. Would it be better if Daniel had set the bar low for us and been mediocre like a lot of us are, like I am oftentimes? Would it be better for him to be mediocre and look at him in the Bible and say, wow, Daniel didn't pray half the week, you know? 
He didn't keep his time of, uh, of appointments with God. He, com oh, he compromised in chapter 1 when he was supposed to not eat the king's food and drink his wine. He went ahead and did that anyway. Uh, instead of taking a stand for God uh, with the lion's den thing, he, he, he didn't pray when, uh, when they passed that law that you can't pray. He could have just copped out and not prayed. He didn't do that. He took a stand. Would it be better for Daniel to have been mediocre? Would that have been better for us? That wasn't part of God's plan, right? So ultimately, it's, it's easier not to, have, to put forth any work or effort or discipline or sweat, right? It's easier just to let it go and do our own thing and be mediocre. But that's not what God had in mind. Uh, thirdly, Daniel was a human like we are. Keep that in mind. Let's look at some examples of that. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. Daniel shows humanness at different points. In Daniel 7, 28, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were alar greatly alarming me. My face grew pale, he says. Look at chapter 8, verse 27. He says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick, sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. He says, While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people. Daniel was a man who, who was a sinner like the rest of us. Well, he doesn't seem to be, but he was. Chapter 10, verse 8. Daniel says, So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. It's true Daniel was a great man, there's no doubt about it. But nevertheless, Daniel was a man uh, more than anything else. And don't forget about that. Look at the Apostle Paul. He was a man, even though he was a great man. You see the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel with great boldness and going out there and doing the work and getting stoned and getting beaten and all these things and you think Paul is some kind of a superhuman and Paul was a great man of God but nevertheless he was a human look at 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 1 by the way did Paul ever get down did he ever get discouraged or depressed doesn't seem like it right but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse, verses 8 through 10 Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 1 8 we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. He's in despair here. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. We set our hope on him. So Paul was in, was in despair, but he learned to trust in God as a result, right? Learned that he was weak. Look at James chapter 5. <coughs> James 5. You look at these guys in the Bible and you say, wow, we can never be like them. James 5, verses 17 and 18. What about Elijah, the great man who stood against the prophets of Baal and had that great deliverance and victory? And then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And then he runs. He's totally depressed and tries to go. He has his death wish. He goes out into the desert. James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with what? A nature like ours, right? He was like we are. He prayed earnestly it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit, and so on. But he had a nature like ours. These men were fallen, were, had fallen natures like we do. But they had come to the point to where they committed themselves to God. The Bible says all of sin, right, and come short of the glory of God. So keep in mind when you're reading the Bible about all these guys, they're humans. 
They're not superhuman. Okay? Fourthly, Daniel was not a man. Daniel was not the man he was on his own merit. He wasn't the man he was on his own merit. He was enabled by God to do what he did, right? Look at Dan, the book of Daniel. Go back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I'm taking my time with this because I think I might have given you a misconception about Daniel along the way here that he was some kind of a super being here, but he's as great a man as he was. Look what look why he was this way. Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says here when Daniel's not going to compromise regarding the food, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Great stand he's going to take, right? Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. What if God hadn't done that? The stand wouldn't have been so great after all. But God stepped in, right? Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence, right? God is the one behind that. Daniel wasn't smart on his own merit, knowledgeable on his own merit, intelligent on his own merit, but God gave him that ability, right? Look at chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Um, it says here, when uh, no one could interpret the, the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They're requesting compassion from God. Where, where are they going to? Are they devising a plan out of their own ingenuity and their own mind because they're so brilliant? No, they're going to God, right, to ask him for compassion. And then look at the answer. In verses 9, Daniel gets the answer. and look, what he, look, look how he prays in verse 20. Verse 19, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to who? To him. It is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men, knowledge to men of understanding. It's he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. The light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel is giving God the praise and thanksgiving for uh, for uh, what God did. He credits God for everything, right? He's humble before Nebuchadnezzar in verses 25 to 28 of chapter 2. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, or in verse 25, Ariok says, I've got a guy who can interpret the dream for you, king. And the king in verse 26 says, Are you the guy that can interpret this dream? Verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, Neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. God is the one that can do this. And then look at the secret of his power, the secret of what he, of who he was. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. The secret of his excellent, excellent spirit, his godliness, uncompromising stance, and so on. Daniel 6:10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house now his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. You know what the, the issue is here? Daniel was living in total dependence upon God. Think about that. You're praying three times a day, seeking God. God's going to enable you to do what he wants you to do. And that's not beyond us to live in total reliance upon God. Well, we can't, we're not going to be Daniel. We're not going to be Charles Spurgeon or... Paul or uh, Elijah, but
But you can be who God made you to be, and living in total reliance upon him, right? And so our failures and sins and weaknesses should drive us to the point of reliance upon God, right? Fifthly, is Daniel in the scripture there, is he there to intimidate us? Is that why he's there? No, he's there by the providence of God, right? Um, I'm saying this because I thought the same thing Mike did. It's a very intimidating guy. God used him for a specific time and purpose in history, like Esther. Remember, Esther was used at a specific time in history for a purpose, and, her, and Mordecai said to her, Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such time as this? In other words, God had Esther at the right time, in the right place, to do his, perf- his perfect will, right? And Daniel was there, too, in the providence of God. Did Daniel set the bar too high? Yeah, but that's better than having it set too low, right? And was he perfect? No. He was a man in need of God. What was the secret? He sought God. He walked with God. He depended upon God, right? Leaned heavily on God, credited God. It's all about God all the time. That's why he did what he did. That's why he took the stands he took. That's why he had the mentality he had. That's why he had an excellent spirit, because he was relying upon God. So I wanted us to have a better understanding of that, so I wanted to review that a little bit. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 7 and the rest of the, of the, of the book. We're not going to get far, very far at all in Daniel chapter 7, just barely into it. Just kind of look at what the last section of, of Daniel is about, though. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is a very important chapter, and this is the kind of statement you read in commentaries about this. Here's one. One guy said, Modern commentators are generally, generally agreed that chapter 7 is the single most important chapter in the book of Daniel. That's a big, that's a quite a statement to make. I mean, I would think Daniel 9, the, the end of it, might be the most important, but this guy says Daniel 7. Another guy says chapter 7 is the heart of Daniel. Somebody else said, it would be no exaggeration to say that this chapter is one of the most important passages of the entire Old Testament. So, Daniel 7, very important. Well, why is it important? Well, for one reason, it's, it's a transitional chapter in Daniel. Um, we said at the beginning of our study that Daniel had two main divisions. The first six chapters were the narrative section. The second six chapters are uh, prophecy, visions, those kind of things. And uh, there are, in the narratives, there's a minimum of, of uh, visions. And in the prophecy section, there's a minimum of narrative or history. So both are true, but basically you have the narratives. Chapter 1, you have God uh, allowing Judah to be taken captive by Babylon. You have Daniel's stamps on the food and wine. Chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. No one can interpret, and Daniel finally is given the ability to do it, another narrative. In chapter 3, you have um, the fiery furnace. You have uh, the three Hebrew, Hebrew children who have refused to bow before the idol that, that the Nebuchadnezzar sets up. And then they face the fiery furnace. And God delivers them out of that. Another narrative, chapter 4, you have uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, testimony. He's saying that God humbled him, although he was proud, and he made him for seven years act like an animal in the field. And then he restored him to his kingdom. Another narrative, chapter 5, Belshazzar um, has a feast, and then outside the walls of Babylon, Medias, the Medes and the Persians are trying to come in and take over the city, and and the handwriting is on the wall, and Daniel interprets it and says to Belshazzar, your kingdom is finished. Another narrative. Chapter 6, Daniel is with his co-workers. They're jealous of him, and they say to, and, and they pass the law. It says, if, you, if the king, if anybody prays to anybody but you for the next 30 days, that he should die. 
And so Daniel has to face the lion's den, and God delivers him out of that. So you have all these narratives in the first six chapters. The second section of the book, chapters 7 through 12, mainly is visions or prophecies. And uh, chapter 7 is tied to the earlier chapters by the Aramaic language, we said underlied our English here, and also by Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. That ties the two, cha- two sections together. Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 is very important in chapter 7 as well. We'll see that, okay? So, the first six chapters are preparatory to the second part of Daniel and necessary to understand it. Necessary to understand Daniel's background, his nationality, his, uh, uh, what he believes about God, his stands for God, his character, and so on and so forth. And, the, and, the, and what happens, what God does in the first six chapters of this book by displaying his power and his sovereignty... Uh, show us that that continues in the second six chapters of Daniel. Same thing. God shows his power and his sovereignty. It's a transitional chapter, chapter 7, first of all. Secondly, it's extremely important prophetically, chapter 7 is. John Wolverd, a well-known teacher of prophecy, says this, the vision of Daniel in chapter 7 provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. And that's quite a statement. For Wolverd to say that the Vision of Daniel in chapter 7 provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. It's quite a statement. Daniel traces the course of, uh, of the uh, four great world empires, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, throughout chapter 7 and concludes with the second coming of Christ in, the, in the, his eternal kingdom that he sets up. So we're going to see here in this chapter four separate visions, uh, I'm sorry, in the last several chapters, 7 through 12, four separate visions uh, four different times during the history of the first six chapters. Uh, by the way, the visions that take place in verses 7 to 12, they all happen within the framework, of the historical framework of the first six chapters. So you don't continue the chronology from chapter 6 on. Now we, we, we revert back to the first six chapters as to when these took place. Uh, but the visions are in chronological sequence. Look at chapter 7, for example, verse 1. It says in verse 1, the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind. See that? We're going back in time now, back to when uh, Daniel was under the reign of Belshazzar when Babylon was in charge, when this, chapter, when this vision takes place. The second vision in chapter 8, look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, Belshazzar the king again, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which, I, which appeared to me previously. So he has a second vision during the time of Babylon, Babylon's reign. The third vision in chapter 9, look at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of, of the Chaldeans, and he goes on in the last verses of that chapter, he has a vision, about 70 weeks. And it happened during the time of Darius. Um, and then you go to chapters 10 through 12 for the fourth vision. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name, who was named Belteshazzar. So he has that fourth vision. By the way, who was Cyrus, king of Persia? <laughs> well, we'll get into that later, but most people think he was either Darius the Mede, and Cyrus was just an alternative title, or they think he was a governor appointed by Cyrus, and I want to confuse you about that. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 10 further. But the thing to notice is about these chapters is, they don't, 7 through 12 do not continue chronologically, but they go back under the framework of the first six chapters. And the, the first six chapters recorded events about Daniel and his friend, friends to highlight the sovereignty of God. And the second six chapters 
also highlight the sovereignty of God as well. So, chapter 7 is important because it's transitional and because it's detailed prophecy. And it's not easy either, by the way. Um, I wanted to tell you a few more general observations about chapter 7 and the latter half of Daniel. Uh, In the first half of the book, Daniel always spoke in the third person. Look at Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1, verses 8 and 9. Notice he's speaking in the third person. It says here, but Daniel. Daniel's the writer, by the way. But Daniel made up his mind he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer. And then verse 21. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So in the first six chapters, it's like that. Third person always. In the second six, six chapters, starting with chapter 7, verse 2, Daniel speaks in the first person with the exception of chapter 10, verse 1. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. I know a lot of this is really repetitive and boring, um, but it's necessary to lay a foundation. Chapter two, 7, verse 2, Daniel said, first person, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Uh, Look at chapter 7, verse uh, 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And in verse 28, at this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and so on. So you can see that the first person is used. That's to emphasize that Daniel himself is receiving the visions, whereas before King Nebuchadnezzar received them, or maybe... The message was given to Belshazzar, handwriting on the wall or whatever. Now Daniel's receiving these visions. I've got a question for you. If the visions in chapters 7 through 12 refer to the future, and they do, then what significance did they have for Daniel and the people in his time? Does it mean anything in all of those people or not? Well, they were very important to Daniel and his people because though the visions were for the future, God was reassuring the Jews of Daniel's time that I haven't left you or forsaken you. I'm still... You're still in my plan here. Uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 talk about promises that God made to Abraham about Israel. I'll give, give you an example. Genesis 17, 3, God says, Abraham fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, you and kings will come forth from you. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I'll give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I'll be their God. So God makes all these promises. Look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. We're going to be with you always, and so on and so forth. And now, and now all of a sudden, the people are wondering, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because um, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. There is no nation of Israel now. There is a there's a there's a nation that's that's there, but it's it's not it's not in existence per se because Babylon has captured Judah. And somehow my notes disappeared and went somewhere else. I don't know where. Oh, there it is right there. Okay. Anyway, now it's probably totally confusing. Uh, at any rate, uh, 
nation of Israel ceased to exist because Assyria had taken uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, captive in the 8th century. And then Babylon came in and took Judah captive. And now they're kind of like, what do we do now? There's no nation of Israel, really. You can imagine that the Jews that love God were wondering, is God going to keep his promise? He said he'd be with us forever. And they're wondering about that. So, And by the way, Israel got what they deserve, right? They deserve judgment. They worshiped idols. They disobeyed God, and they got what they deserved. God made it clear to them that um, you know, they're going to be judged. And yet here in, Daniel, in, in the book of Daniel, God makes it clear through the prophet Daniel that, you know, Israel, I'm still with you. There's a plan for you in the future. You're going to be here. I'm going to bless you, and so on and so forth. And so this was a great encouragement to Israel as well. So just like we talk about the coming of Christ today, and uh, it's a great encouragement for us, right? It's something we can look forward to, to hope in the future. And so Israel was given hope uh, through that. Um, I wanted to say also that interpreting the prophetic literature in these chapters, there's a lot of symbolism, right? Just like in Revelation, Mike's been talking about that. Like today, Mike talked about the fact that, you know, all those uh, symbols in Revelation 9, you know, the Hal Lindsey years ago, when he wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, interpreted it as helicopters and tanks and whatever else he said. I read that book a long time ago. Um, and other guys have said the same thing, that, you know, that's not true. I mean, we, none, none of us know exactly what those things mean necessarily. So these are, these are difficult things. There's symbolism there. And usually the meaning of the symbols, though, however, is explained in the text. A lot of times the text will say, this is what this means, like Revelation 1. I think it talks about the, star, the stars, and then it explains what it means. And that happens a lot. Sometimes you'll have to go to other scriptures, other related scriptures, to find out what it means. But Daniel 7, in my opinion, not an easy chapter to interpret. Um, and so it's difficult. I kind of feel like Daniel did after he got the... After he got the revelation, look at Daniel 7.28 again. This is how I feel after looking at this chapter. <laughs> at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming to me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, that's good advice. Maybe I should just keep this to myself, what I don't know about this chapter, <laughs> and just let you guys try to figure it out yourself. But, you know, you do the best. I thought it would be a good policy. But nevertheless, you do the best you can. Um, and so what, what about Daniel chapter 7? What are we to say about this? Well, we want to be honest with, with what it says and not go crazy on interpretation, these kind of things, symbols and all that. We want to be careful about that. So let's get into this a little bit, not very much, and uh, we'll see what it has to say. If I can find how I misplaced something and put something in the wrong place, it would be very interesting too. That would be helpful. Um, very interesting, Ryan. I don't know how that happened. That's one thing I have a fear about always, having notes that are out of place, and yet for some reason that's what happened tonight. Oh, well. This is the Daniel's night vision and its meaning. This is called Daniel's night vision in chapter 7 and its meaning. The setting of the vision is, is in verse 1. It says here, well, let's read verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind also was given to it. 
And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. And so you, just to get an idea of, of some of the context here, to get into this, in this particular vision that Daniel had, the first one of the four. In verse 1, uh, he talks about, he says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, he talks about when this vision took place. And you remember Belshazzar was mentioned in what chapter? We just said it a minute ago that we looked at. Chapter 5, right? Uh, and that was the last year of his reign. But he says this took place, this vision took place in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. And do you remember Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar when we talked about that? And they had, they had, they co-reigned. Well, and, you know, Belshazzar was made co-region in 553 B.C. Daniel was about 67 years old at that time. And Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for about nine years. And the handwriting on the wall took place 14 years later in Daniel 5. And so this vision is 14 years before Daniel chapter 5 uh, when this took place. And it says here that Daniel saw a dream and a vision. And this time, like we said earlier, the vision didn't come to Nebuchadnezzar as Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, but Daniel personally receives the vision. Before, he's been interpreting dreams for other people. Now it comes to him directly, personal to, to Daniel. And it says in verse 1, it's very interesting, he says he wrote down the dream and he related the following summary of it. Wrote down the dream. He, it was so important to him, he didn't want to forget it. And so he write, writes down a summary. He didn't even write down every detail. He wrote down the foremost details of the dream, actually is what it means. The gist of the dream, he wrote it down. And so the details of the vision are found in verses 2 to 14. First of all, he talks in verse 2 about the four winds in the sea, in the great sea. It says in verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Um, now there's different takes on the great sea. Some people think the Great Sea here is the Mediterranean Sea because in some parts of the Bible it talks about the Great Sea being called the Mediterranean. It was right off the coast of Israel. In Joshua chapter 1 he talks about the Great Sea, referring to the Mediterranean. But here we can't say that that's the case. The reason is because fortunately for us the interpretation is given uh, about, this, about this sea in verses 3 and 17. Look at verse 3. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea differing from one another. The four great beasts are coming up from the sea, right? Look at verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from where? They'll arise from the earth. And so in, in the interpretation right here we're given, we're told that the, the sea, interestingly enough, is a symbol for the earth. Uh, and it says it very plainly in verse 17. Well, how is that? Well, in the scripture, the sea often stands for uh, humanity. And, and people that dwell upon the earth, and especially sinful humanity. And uh, actually, this is a very accurate description of how it is to see. Look at Isaiah chapter 57, for example. Isaiah 57, 
And I'm not telling you, trying to tell you anything that's strange here. The reason I'm saying this is because Daniel 7.17 tells us that's what it is. Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, it says this, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse in mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's a famous verse about that particular subject. Wicked are like the sea. Look at Isaiah 17, verses 13 and 12 and 13. Isaiah 17, verses 12 and 13. says there, also the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations, who rush on like the rumbling of many waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he'll rebuke them and so on. And then look over in Revelation 17.1. Mike's in Revelation, and he's going to talk about the sea in chapter 13 soon. And uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But in Revelation 17.1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, right? And then Revelation 17, verse 15. He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The great thing when interpreting the Bible just tells you flat out what it is, right? The waters which you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so, and I looked up, Mike's teacher, Robert Thomas, who wrote two-volume commentary on Revelation. And he says that he agrees that the waters here represent people. However, in chapter 13, verse 1, he says they represent the reservoir of evil, <laughs> not the mass of humanity. I don't want you to say something different than I said about that. <laughs> so I looked it up. But anyway, he, in Revelation 17, that's his take as well. So you, you can see here that in Daniel 7, coming up out of the sea, these great beasts, they're coming up out of the earth, according to verse 17. Look at verse Daniel chapter 7, verse 3, the four beasts, the beasts from the sea. And four beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Now this chapter discusses four beasts and the kingdom of God. And I want you to know what's going on in this chapter at the outset here. How do we, how do we interpret this, these four beasts? How do we to interpret this? Just our own devices? Just pick it out of my brain or something? Or get some crazy idea out there that somebody's throwing around? I don't think so. Let me quote what Stephen Miller, an Old Testament professor at Mid-America Baptist Seminary, said. Listen to this. Virtually everyone agrees that the vision of chapter 7 parallels the dream image of chapter 2 and that both passages should be interpreted in the same manner. Virtually everyone agrees that the vision of chapter 7 parallels the dream image, that's the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, of chapter 2 and that both passages should be interpreted in the same manner. Even liberals agree on that a lot of times, I've read. And so what was in chapter 2? We'll turn back there. Turn back to chapter 2 again. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You need to see this to get an idea of how this interpretation is going to be. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So he's got a dream, right? And then look at verse, verses 31 to 40, and it talk, tells us what the dream is. Verse 31. Daniel says to the king, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, and that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you. Its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, 
and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the, earth, of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, and so much as iron crushes, shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces. I will crush and break all these things in pieces, and so on. So you've got four kingdoms talked about in chapter 2. Very important dream Nebuchadnezzar had. We talked about those kingdoms. What are they? Babylon, right? Media Persia. Third is Greece. Fourth is Rome. You have those four kingdoms. The same four kingdoms in chapter 2 are those in found in chapter 7 as well. It's following the same pattern in both chapters. Chapter 2, you've got the four kingdoms. Then you've got a fifth kingdom. And you've got the same thing in chapter 7, a fifth kingdom. And that kingdom is eternal and does away with all the earthly kingdoms. Look at chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. I want to show you the pattern here so you can see that I'm not just talking off the top of my head. In um, 2.44 it says, In the days of those kingdoms and those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. It will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the, the thing that will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation trustworthy. So you've got a, the kingdom of God that's going to be set up. Destroying all the kingdoms before it, it's going to rule forever, right? Look at chapter 7, verse 13. Similar thing happens, same pattern. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It says here, I kept looking. you got the four kings of the four beasts. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of, the, of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All the dominions will serve and obey him. You have the same pattern. You've got the four kings, four kingdoms, and then you've got a fifth kingdom, which is God's kingdom, which destroys everything in front of it and, and, and is eternal. So we're taking the interpretation of chapter 7 as be, to be the same four kingdoms as are in chapter 2. Um, and there's other reasons. We'll see those as we go along. Some thoughts concerning the two passages, though. Uh, first of all, the two accounts complement each other and provide details not found in the other. Chapter 2 has certain details. Chapter 7 has other details that complement it. Secondly, it's possible that the chapter, chapter 2 presents uh, the... Uh, view of the kingdoms of men from the point of view of man because it talks about the glittering kingdoms and the, the statue of gold and so on and so forth. Whereas chapter 7 presents it from God's point of view because it talks about vicious, cruel animals and compares the kingdoms to that. And so why is, why is the message repeated in chapter 2 and 7? Probably to emphasize, for emphasize, to emphasize the certainty rather. And just like Joseph, his dream was repeated twice. And God does this throughout scripture at times. 
So what's the emphasis of chapter 7? And we'll get into this more next week. God's sovereignty, right? Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, verse 14, To him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. God's sovereign, right? Verse 27, The sovereignty, dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under him, under the whole of heaven, will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All the dominions will serve and obey him. The same theme in the first six chapters of Daniel is true in the last six chapters of Daniel. God is sovereign. God's in control. God's all-powerful. The world worships, or people should worship him and come to him. He rules over all. There's no difference. Sovereignty of God is, is true throughout the whole book. And we'll continue next week in chapter 7 and see more about this. So for tonight, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together and for... Uh, book of Daniel and how it uh, is helpful to all of us. We just pray we will uh, learn from the life of Daniel and his three friends to uh, be those that would follow you and depend upon you and rely upon you totally and completely. And give us an understanding of the book and so it might encourage us and help us in our lives. We just pray this in Christ's name.